From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Atlanta sports fans are all too familiar with dashed hopes, but there are some flickers of light on the horizon. While the Falcons are having a rough first half of the season, the Hawks and Atlanta United are taking home win after win. We've got a couple of pros to talk us through some of the current dynamics of Georgia sports. John Nelson, correspondent and host for GPB's Football Fridays and the Football Fridays podcast. He joins us now by phone this morning. John, hello. Nothing like uh, multitasking, hey, VA? <laughs> you know how to do it. Also with us, Taylor Gant, Morning Edition producer and congenital sports watcher. Thank you so much for oh, being with congenital. us. Congenital. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Let's start with the Falcons head coach, Dan Quinn. Pretty much the talk of the town and now the talk of the nation. Everybody is asking about this. The team mm-hmm. faced the Seattle Seahawks at Mercedes-Benz Stadium on Sunday. What was on the line for Coach Quinn going into this game? I'll ask you first, John. Other than his job? Well, that seems like it. And when your team gets off to to such a horrible start, and it seems to be the same kind of playing that we see every single week. The team falls behind quickly, they fall behind early, and then there's the furious comeback at the end, and they end up coming up just short. And when you're having to do it with Matt Ryan being dinged up and injured and your backup quarterback, Matt Schaub, having to, to run reps, it was a difficult task. But once again, Falcons come up short. And uh, I think the, as uh, one of the, the movies of the, the 90s, Backdraft, referred to it, the career dissipation light of Dan Quinn probably kicked into overdrive. <laughs> Backdraft reference. <laughs> that's, that's some deep cuts right there. The Falcons did have a rough first half, got a little far back in the second, but ultimately lost to the Seahawks 27 to 20. Here's Coach Quinn right after the loss. You know, from a team standpoint, we came out in the second half and, uh, you know, fought back. You certainly can't lose the turnover battle, uh, zero to three, uh, and expect to come out ahead. So uh, for us, what we had talked to the team, the first half of the season is complete, and we have to come out for the second half of the season, much like we came out in the second half today. If we do that, we'll be the team uh, that we'd like to play like. But uh, certainly losing that turnover margin and digging yourself into a hole at the start, tough way to get started into, into a game. So, Taylor, what do you think? I mean, he's saying that we, have, we still have a chance, uh, but it doesn't look like the rest of the world is with him. Well, unfortunately, what John said was right on point. Uh, you hear these same things every week. we got to win the turnover battle. We have to stay prepared. You know, we're, we're going to figure out ways to get through this. But unfortunately, when you're one in Seven, uh, those words have to be getting stale in the locker room. Uh, you know, despite what the players may say, you know, it, it seems like we're just in a bit of a Groundhog Day situation where we say the same things are going to change and they never do. Uh, so it seems that you know we're going to be stuck until something changes, and it soon will. Okay, so fans, plenty of sports press calling now for Quinn to be fired. Over the past 36 hours, especially, all eyes are on the Falcons owner, Arthur Blank, to decide if he will replace Coach Quinn in the middle of the season. What factors go into a midseason replacement, Taylor? Well, I think really what you have to decide is, is the situation untenable? Meaning that it are things so bad that no matter what you do besides firing the coach, that it has to be done. In this case, it, it seems that we, despite the record, we might not be there yet as far as the chemistry goes. You know, players have come out in defense of Dan Quinn. They've said that it's on us. You know, we're the ones on the field. You know, he's on the sidelines. We have to be the ones playing better. Uh, and it seems that, you know, making it to a Super Bowl in 2017 does buy you a good bit of capital, you know, when things aren't going so well. And Arthur Blank has said so, you know, these past few weeks, uh, pledging support, not so much recently. 
So what do you think, John? What The arguments for and against keeping Coach Quinn have been firing on both sides. How uh, this is currently the Falcons bye week. Will a weekend off actually impact this choice? Do you think? Arthur Blank has said repeatedly that he's going to be taking the, the bye week and the, the rest of the season to figure out the, the future of Dan Quinn. I think that the writing is on the wall, but what you have to, to look at here is if you go ahead and make the move and dismiss Dan Quinn, you've got another couple of coaches on staff who have NFL experience, mm-hmm. but are they a part of the problem as well? Who's your interim coach? Who's going to be taking over for Dan Quinn? Does chemistry continue to degrade from the point that it is right there? And how many of the players are, are held responsible for what they're doing on the field? It, it, it turns into a gigantic emotional snowball, really, when it comes to figuring out what you want to do with Dan Quinn. If you fire him now, is it worth firing him now? Or do you just go ahead and analyze the situation, take the remainder of the year, and with Arthur Blank and his business acumen, you're sitting there and you're looking right now at a business that is, that is failing. So then what's the best approach in a failing business? Do you analyze that business for X amount of period of time, or do you just go ahead and put the, uh, the for sale sign or the closed sign on the front door and figure out where to go from there and then reopen it under new management? How common is a midseason replacement of an NFL coach? It's occasional. Uh, it's more with coordinators, really, than it is with head coaches. The San Diego uh, – all right, so that's a dollar in the jar for me. The Los Angeles Chargers fired their offensive coordinator last night after uh, starting out their season three and six. It's more common with coordinators in this day and age. And really, if you're going to dismiss a head coach, it normally would happen – Later in the year, the bye week is the natural excuse, but you're looking at something that is so untenable, say game 13-14, that you just go ahead and do it, and then uh, you have an interim coach for those final couple of games. Is there a clear successor if they do replace Coach Quinn? Oh, well, probably I, Taylor, I mean, probably it's one of those coordinators, yeah? Yeah, I'd have to say probably Dirk Cutter. You know, he's the one with the most recent coaching experience. He came over from Tampa Bay after running the show there. Um, but you've also got a couple other choices. You know, Mike Malarkey you know, was actually a offensive coordinator for the team a few years back. Um, but like, like, like John said, it, it's going to be a Band-Aid. Uh, and what will eventually happen next year is they're going to just throw out this entire staff and try to start over again. That is Taylor Gant from GPB. And we also have with us John Nelson. And correspondent and host of Football Fridays. That's on GBB TV and also the Football Fridays podcast, talking about the Atlanta Falcons and the possibility of a midseason replacement for their coach, Dan Quinn. Well, let's just change the subject, shall we? Let's there start afresh go, ourselves. <laughs> Atlanta United having a very opposite season, following on the heels of winning the MLS Cup last season, now one game away from a chance at taking it again, facing the Toronto Football Club in the Eastern Conference Final on Wednesday. That's tomorrow night right here in Atlanta. Um, Taylor, what are you thinking about heading into this game? Well, one of the things I'm really hoping to see is the return of Michael Parkhurst, who fans were watching a couple weeks ago, uh, had his shoulder dislocated or separated uh, on the field in the final moments of the game. And there was training staff all over the place trying to pop it back in, and they couldn't do it. It was one of the more excruciating things you could see. (laughs) Or This guy's just in crazy pain. Uh, And he missed last week's playoff win. uh, But he's in training right now, and it's looking like he'll have a good chance to come back. Um, So for me, it's the reunification of that defense uh, led by Michael Parker's is a big, big step. All right. Should we be that concerned that Miles Robinson has been ruled out for the game? What do you think, John? 
perpetually, yeah. I mean, Miles has been out for the last couple of uh, games because of what happened when he was training with the U.S. men's national team, and that's a segment in and of itself, and Taylor and I both know that. But hmm. what you saw last time out was a, a back line of folks who are just as capable, but I know that when you're missing a, an all uh, an all 11 player in miles and what he's what he's meant to that back line at center back there are players who can fill in the void and do things defensively for head coach Frank DeBoer. No, it's not the same having Miles out of the lineup, but as it was evidenced last time out going up against Philadelphia, there are guys that can fill in the spots and do well defensively. Well, Atlanta United has faced Toronto Football Club twice so far. One win, one loss. What does United have to focus on going into this game? What do you think, John? Doing their thing. I mean, when you look at what happened in those other matches, you had a team in Atlanta United that was dealing with massive schedule compression, basically playing a lot of matches in a very short period of time and dealing with fatigue. And with the matchup that happened in Atlanta, the head coach for Toronto FC decided that he wanted to completely and totally rotate most of his squad and came out with a lineup that had a lot of folks scratching their head. So he put himself behind the eight ball there. When they played in Toronto, it was a very, very odd sequence of events. A penalty was called against Atlanta United that really shouldn't have been called, and that was a late goal that Toronto scored. Then, with virtually no time left on the clock, you had a penalty called against Toronto that seemed like a bit of a make-good. So it was just a crazy chaos that happened in Toronto last time out. It's just Atlanta United right now, they just need to do what they need to do. The biggest question for Toronto is whether or not their big power forward, Josie Altador, is going to play. What do you think, uh, Taylor, after the Eastern Cup final, Seattle and L.A. face off on the West Coast. Mm. Which team is Atlanta United best suited to dominate? Well, think? I would say that uh, taking up matchups completely aside, obviously LAFC, probably the best team in soccer right now. Uh, but if they lose, that means that Atlanta United for the second year straight will get to host MLS Cup. So even if there were some dangerous players on Seattle, which there are, uh, you'd much rather host than go on the road. All right. All right. On to basketball and talk Hawks because the Atlanta Hawks have had a great start to their season. Two consecutive wins so far. Lost last night. Uh, so what's driving their success, Taylor? Well, it's absolutely this youth movement that has made up the Hawks. You have uh, six players in the regular rotation that are under 22 years old, oh which is, you know, so it, with, with that comes a lot of energy and a lot of uh, optimism, you know, for, for, for a good season. Um, and it's all, of course, led by Trey Young. He's uh, the second leading scorer in the NBA right now. 30 four points a game to go along with nine assists and he's just been fantastic to watch you know a couple of crowds uh, at State Farm Arena were packed out uh, over the past two games and it, it's easy to see that there is a lot of excitement around this team. So the Hawks in their second year of a rebuilding phase do you think they're on the right track to make it to the playoffs? I, I think they certainly have a great chance um, you know they missed by uh, you know, a, a slightly considerable margin last year only 29 wins uh, but considering how uh, the Eastern Conference has kind of suffered from injury Kevin Durant not playing this year in Brooklyn. That means there's an opening for a team, a scrappy young team like the the Hawks, to, to move in and at least qualify for the playoffs. And one member of the Hawks breaking a record this year at age 42, Vince Carter playing his 22nd year in the league. If he plays at least once in 2020, he's going to be the first NBA player to play in four different decades. So let's hear just a clip of him talking about that. When you put it in perspective, there's a few guys on this team who, who were not born yet. For me, sometimes it doesn't even feel like I've played that long. I mean, I've been around a long time, seen a lot of things, I know it. But when you say, yeah, it's been 22 years, it's just like, dang, it has been 22 years. So uh, for me, it's, it's kind of like this business as usual. 
That was Atlanta Hawks player Vince Carter. Uh, quickly to you, John, how does the game change for someone at that point in their career? You have to manage your body. You have to know what your body can do. You have to take care of your body better than you did probably in your 20s and 30s. And the fact that Vince can still dunk Taylor <laughs> at his age and have the hops to, to really bring the crowd out of their seats, it's, it's, it's a fun watch to see someone kind of go toe-to-toe with Father Time the way that Vince does. And if you if you need to go back and, and remember how great Vince Carter was, just you have to Google uh, Slam Dunk Contest 2000, some of the best dunks you'll ever see. Uh, he was a revolutionary, you know, decades ago, and now he's still just this amazing role player today. All right, quickly to you, Taylor. NBA is dominated in, in the past couple of years by Golden State, certainly. Does it look mm-hmm. like that trend is going to continue? Well, it does. I mean, considering Kevin Durant, like I said before, left Golden State after he was injured in the finals, uh, went to Brooklyn. He's not in this year. Uh, so it's really going to be a, a bit of a wide open chase. You know, I'm not saying the Hawks are necessarily contenders this year. That's going to be in the future. Um, but you have teams like L.A. with, you know, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, uh, both teams in L.A., uh, Clippers and Lakers, who are really going to make things very interesting uh, going on to the playoffs later this year. All right. GPB's Taylor Gant from our Morning Edition team here. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. And GPB's John Nelson, thank you so much for joining us in your busy schedule. Really appreciate it. Anytime, VA. John co-hosts GPB's Football Fridays in Georgia podcast, and you can subscribe for free. That's at gpb.org slash podcasts or anywhere that you get your podcasts. And we're going to close with the Football Fridays theme song. And if you have an Amazon smart speaker, you can hear John listing the top five high school football teams and games that he is following Just say, hey, Alexa, ask GPB for John's top games of the week. We always love to hear from you. You can ask us anything. You're on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. Leave your comments, leave your suggestions, leave your thoughts. We're also on Twitter at OST Talk. Stay with us for a step inside Fuji's Academy in Clarkston and learn why it was just named the nicest place in Georgia. I'm Virginia Prescott. That's when On Second Thought continues. And we're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. When Luma Mufle moved from Jordan to the United States in 1994 to attend college, she didn't imagine she'd be running a full-fledged school for refugees. Well, the Fuji's Academy in Clarkston is part of the Fuji's family nonprofit that was named the nicest place in Georgia by Reader's Digest and was a finalist for that publication's annual Nicest Place in America list. Coach Luma, as she is known by her students and Fuji Academy community, joins me now in the studio to talk about building equal educational opportunities for refugee children. Luma, a hearty welcome to you. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is such an amazing story. It all began with you. This idea for a soccer academy for refugee youth began in 2004, living near Atlanta, feeling a little homesick, took a wrong turn while driving. What What happened? Um, I was on my way to a Middle Eastern grocery store in Clarkston uh, to get, you know, uh, authentic pita bread and hummus. Uh, I missed my turn onto Ponce de Leon, ended up in this apartment complex, and I saw some kids uh, outside playing soccer. Um, and they remind me of the way I grew up playing soccer in the streets of Jordan with my cousins and brothers. And um, I wanted to play. I had been feeling homesick. Uh, the game that I loved was right there in front of me. Um, and so I had a soccer ball in my trunk. I had been coaching uh, club soccer for a while and asked to join a game uh, with six boys. And uh, they really wanted the soccer ball, um, but were reluctant about letting a woman and a stranger play with them. Mm. Um 
but the ball won out. Uh, they got in their huddle, discussed amongst themselves, and then reluctantly said, okay, you can play. Um, and I got the chubby kid and uh, the really short one, and that's how it all started in a parking lot in Clarkston, Georgia. So you started playing with them more regularly, and then some of them approached you for tutoring. Uh, and you learned, for example, that after three years of living in the U.S., one of them still couldn't read or write in English. So how did that realization affect you? Um, it, sh it shook me to my core. Um, my parents sent me to British and American schools growing up um, because they believed that Western education was the best the world had to offer, specifically American education. And so I thought all schools in America were like my American school in Jordan. And I was shocked uh, to find out that was not the case. Uh, one of my players, a uh, quiet kid, really good kid, um, my players had to give their report cards in order to play. He had A's and B's. I was working with him on his homework, and he would say, I have a headache. Can you read to me and help me fill it out? I did it first day. Second day, I did it again. By the third day, I was like, come on, what's going on? Yeah. Um, and he looked up at me and said, Coach, I can't read. Hmm. And like I, I was like, how can one of my players who's been in this country for three years not be able to read? And I felt he was set up for failure. Um, and I said, if this was my kid, what would I do? And I would send him to a private school that could meet his needs. I couldn't afford a private school, so it was actually cheaper to start one um, <laughs> than it amazing. was to send him to that one. That is amazing. Yeah. So Fuji's Academy began there, six kids, one mm -hmm. teacher indicator. You yep. say that it's doubled in enrollment every year since then. So yeah. how, how competitive is it for students to enroll at Fuji's Academy, which, by the way, is free, private, uh, no, tuition-free mm -hmm. private school? Um, I would say it, it's kind of like the reverse admission process of a regular private school. So we take our students, they, they apply to come in, we take them out on the soccer field, and we do what we call tryouts. And we're not looking for the most athletic kid. We're looking for the kid that pushes themselves the hardest, that doesn't give up, that shows up on time, um, that's willing to struggle a little bit, uh, because that's what they're going to be up against in the classroom. Um, and then we do an academic test and we take the lowest performing students. So we want to take the kids that need it the most, not the kids that are going to be okay regardless. Why called Fuji's? It's a take on refugees. Right. You read that I was yeah. thinking the Fuji's band spelled a little differently. <laughs> um, so I, I, I am a fan or I was a fan of the band. Um, and, you know, when we wanted to name our team, we didn't think it would end up being this bigger uh, like social justice organization. We thought it would just be a soccer team. Um, and I remember one day we were driving to a soccer game and the, Lauren, the radio said, oh, here's Lauren Hill with the Fugees. And the kids were like, oh, they stole our name. And I was like, no, guys, it's the other <laughs> way around. We took their name. Um, but we kind of wanted to take back the name, embrace it. Uh, there's power to being a refugee. There's no shame in it. Um, and so kind of just reclaiming uh, what it is to be a Fuji. So you make the argument that public education, the system as it is, is not adequately equipped to support these kind of students in their unique academic needs. Here's a student, is Mahmoud, in his, on his experience in public schools when he first arrived in the U.S. This was after living as a Somali refugee in Kenya. My name is Mahmoud, and I'm a Fuji. My family is, my family is from Somalia, but I was born and raised in Kenya. I joined the Fuji's in 2007, when I was 12 years old. I was in the fourth grade, and I was the only person, I was the only kid in my class who did not speak English. I was just watching the other kids learn. I felt like the teachers didn't care whether I was learning or not. I took a test and failed 
So I had to repeat the same grade again. I couldn't even write a complete sentence. So his story, unfortunately, is not uncommon. What, what is missing in the current educational system as pertains to refugee students? Um, so uh, when a refugee comes into the country, uh, the student is placed in the age-appropriate class, not the level appropriate. Uh, the bulk of refugees have had disrupted education or no formal education whatsoever. So we're talking about students that are coming in age 12 or 13. Some of them have never held a pencil. Uh, some of them have never been physically in a classroom. And we expect the same approach that we do for the bulk of our students to work. And it doesn't work at all. Uh, they need to be in more sheltered classroom. They need to be in protected environments where they are taught the basics and the fundamentals. And their first experience in a school is positive. Because if your first experience in a school is negative, that's going to affect you for the rest of your life. Um, it started out as an all-boys school, but now is co-ed. Has there mm -hmm. been any differences or particular challenge faced when adding girls to the school? Um, you know, it didn't intentionally start off as a boys' school. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm from the Middle East, and I went to Smith College, and so for me, I uh, always wanted uh, girls to, to come in. Um, I think it, the challenges were first uh, with the families. You know, making them understand that if their daughters were coming in, it would be the same exact program that their daughters could not leave early to uh, clean up at home or cook or any of that. So it was that we this it was the exact same program. And then, yeah, it's the same challenges all, all co-ed schools do, you know, um, middle schoolers, crushes, all, all, all the stuff that comes with uh, mixing the genders together. I want to pick up on that. You, you did come and you were a refugee yourself yes. who resettled in the U.S., came here to attend Smith, as you mentioned, and then you came out as gay, which would mean persecution or even death in your home country of Jordan. So you sought asylum in the U.S., granted citizenship in 2011. Does that, you being a gay woman, run up against any of the traditional values carried by some of the students and their families who are new to the U.S.? You know, um, I thought it would. You know, I was um, outed in a, in a weird way. So I had gotten married. In the age of social media, the pictures popped up uh, online, mm -hmm. and some of my players saw them. And this was after our winter break, and I came into school, and a number of my players were upset and um, angry, and I was, I was worried that they were not going to accept me. And so I brought in my three oldest uh, players, the leaders of the school, and I said, you know, I want to apologize to you for not telling you that you had to find out like that. And... They're like, why didn't you tell us? You know, like our relationship's always been very honest, very open. And I said, you know, a number of things. I met you when you were 11. Like, what do I say? Hey, I'm your coach. I'm gay. Mm -hmm. um, I said, I was worried that you would um, not want me to be a part of your life. Like my family disowned me when I came out to them. And they're like, we would never do that. Like, we just wanted you to tell us. And then one of them was like, I'm just so upset you didn't invite me to the wedding. Um, and it was just like this big relief. Um and they've been great and accepting. I think um, if you face that type of uh, hardship and trauma of leaving your home, you want family here and you want people that love you for who you are. Um, and I crave that and they crave that too. And it's it's an odd family like this. Uh, what we look like as a school would never exist anywhere in the world. You know, it's like a gay Muslim family leading refugees from every conflict area in the world. Yeah. Luma Mufle is my guest. She is founder of the Fuji's Academy in Clarkston, Georgia. 
Well, so you have this experience as a refugee and as an outsider on some level. And the Fuji's Academy, the soccer teams travel across the state. Now, Georgia, a place with numerous immigration detention centers, not altogether welcoming. And we recall State Senator Michael Williams' deportation bus used during his campaign for governor. So I'm curious about the reactions that the the students themselves in Fuji's Academy receive as they're passing through these communities in the state? You know, I think uh, the Fuji's see the best and worst of America. Like, we will go out to a game and a Confederate flag will greet us. And on the field, kids will tell us, go back where you came from. And our kids will get very confused. They're like, "Why? we can't go back to where we came from. Like, we'd get killed. It's a war zone. Um, and then we'll finish up a game and the opposing team will invite us for pizza. Um, to sit down and talk and get to know each other. And so we see extremes in in, in a lot of situations that we're in. Um, I think the environment right now is scary. Like we don't know how people are going to react, so we're very protective of our students. Uh, one of our students last year uh, was told she could not play in a soccer game because she wore a hijab. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had to like teach our students how to advocate for themselves, how to, you know, uh, speak up uh, respectfully and ultimately that they are ambassadors and that we have a responsibility to educate uh, the United States on what it's like to be a refugee because I think the majority of the country doesn't understand it um, and it's used to polarize and pull people apart. How about within the group? The students at Re- Fuji Academy represent more than 32 different ethnic groups and some of these students come from backgrounds that have clashed traditionally with each other. How did those play out in the school and even on the field? You know, I would say the first year they're coming into us, our students will uh, self-segregate. They will stick with their group, with their faith, with their community. And then as they are mixed up, we intentionally mix up our students in their houses, in their classrooms, in their um, on their teams. And then by the second, third year, you start seeing them mixing up. Uh, you know, I was asked recently by one of our funders what – what is our biggest success? You know, and I know they want to hear data on our graduation rate, which is 100%, or college acceptance rate, which is also 100%. But my biggest, like, success is we have two kids uh, who are dating. Uh, one is Corinne and one is uh, Rohingya. And where they come from, they're, uh, those groups are murdering each other. Mm-hmm. And these two kids have managed to find love there. Um, and I think that is what is beautiful about the work that we do, that we are mending uh, the pain that is caused outside of here. Well, so much gets carried in with them, and we know a lot more about how trauma imprints on young brains mm-hmm. now than we did even you know, five, ten years ago. So how about counseling and therapy? The, the, not always accepted practices for the cultures that many mm-hmm. of these students come from, but they're dealing with a lot of trauma. So how do you guide them through that in a way that's culturally appropriate? Um, a lot of the stuff we do is on the field. We say, you know, soccer is our mental health program. Yeah. It's uh, We start off our day with uh, yoga. Um, we're an athletic school, so it's very easy for us to say, okay, we're doing yoga as a physical activity. We end our day with soccer. Um, they're surrounded by kids with the same shared experience, and that's part of dealing with the trauma is that you are not alone. You are not the only one in the classroom who has seen war, who has seen your father shot or uh, your mother raped, like, it's the entire school has had some type of that experience. Um, So it's combating the isolation. Um, It's creating a very safe space for them to be and be who they are. And kids are extremely resilient um, and strong. And we've seen it work. Uh, You 
reject that dominant narrative that the idea of pitying or feeling sorry for refugees and have said instead you'd like to refocus attention on what refugees, especially young refugees, are capable Mm -hmm. of accomplishing with the right kind of support. So what do you think people misunderstand about this population? I mean, I I think there's this misperception that, okay, you've, you've been in a war or you've seen these horrible atrocities. That means you cannot do anything. Um, and we underestimate the strength of, of humans and especially the strength of kids. Um, because we've seen kids, you know, where every statistic has said that they should not graduate from high school. Everything from the trauma they experienced as a kid, the malnutrition, the lack of prenatal care, uh, no literacy at home, um, separated uh, parents. uh, And so everything is saying they shouldn't graduate, and then they do the impossible. And that's not because they're unique um, individuals. It is their experience has made them so much stronger that they can accomplish what we consider the impossible. Well, you have been yourself, uh, giving back to this community, have been named, again, the nicest place in Georgia from Reader's Digest magazine, CNN hero in 2016, subject of a best-selling book, Outcasts United by Warren St. John of the New York Times. You said the school like this wouldn't exist outside of America, but how do you reckon that with the fact that you, out of hundreds of millions of Americans, had to piece this together, the Fuji's Academy, out of this need, and then made it a reality. What does it mean for you? Um, I think it speaks to what is uniquely American. You know, someone that had to flee their country, come here, uh, start from scratch. You know, my parents disowned me, and I, I had to build myself up. And uh, yes, it it did take a refugee and someone with the same shared experience to do that, but I think that's a great thing. Um, and now maybe more people can be inspired to do things in their community. You don't have to do it for everyone. You just have to do it for the people around you, and then it will grow. And now Columbus, Georgia, another program there. Columbus, and then, Ohio. Oh, Columbus, Columbus Ohio. Ohio. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And then, isn't there another in Ohio? And then uh, Cleveland will open next fall. So, okay. Yeah. Luma Mufle, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Luma is co-founder of the Fuji's Academy in Clarkston, Georgia. The school uses soccer and an adapted curriculum to foster educational opportunities for resettled children in Georgia. They've expanded again to Columbus, Ohio, planning to open another school in Cleveland this year. Well, we would love to hear your comments, your story about your refugee experience or your working with refugees or your experience coming to America. You can join the conversation. It's on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We also have a Twitter page. We're at Twitter OST Talk. Let us know what you're thinking. And stay with us to hear from the Ghost Brothers, an Atlanta-based trio of former fraternity brothers investigating paranormal activities in homes across America. I'm Virginia Prescott. We will stay and get more of our spook on with On Second Thought after a short break. Something strange in your neighborhood. Who you gonna call? From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. If you're taking advantage of the season's scary movies and TV shows, we suggest binging on Ghost Brothers, Haunted House Guests, to get your Halloween fill. The show's first season on the Travel Channel wrapped earlier this month. Some haunted cuts from the series are now available to watch online. 
The Ghost Brothers are Dalen Spratt, Jawan Mass, and Marcus Harvey. They're all Atlanta-based, and the trio started a TV show of investigating places reported to be haunted in 2016. The new series investigates residential phenomena, like claims of strange goings-on from this family, the Dows. It was a very heavy plate glass mirror. It defied gravity and stood up, somehow shattered before it ever hit anything and caught my leg. It cut me from my knee to my ankle. It cut the artery, severed the tendon. Now our belief is that the bad man is responsible for what happened. The Ghost Brothers stopped by GPB when the series kicked off and I started by asking Dalen how he got started as a ghost hunter. Ah, I mean, it's interesting. So back in the day, back in the day sounds like a really long time ago, but like mm-hmm. back in maybe 2011, uh, I was just watching one of those ghost hunting shows on television and I just realized there was no representation of us on any of these shows. There was no young minorities doing any type of paranormal investigation. I was just curious why was that? Like I grew up in the church. My mother's a pastor. You know, Marcus used to work in the church. Jawan has a strong relationship with God. It's just like, I wondered if our spiritual background played a part of why none of us were ever interested in it. Marcus always says, what do you say, Marcus? Hey, man, black folks believe in the ghost, but it's the Holy Ghost. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. Come on, church. Preach. Well, Juwan, you started hunting ghosts when you were a kid, right? In graveyards. Pretty Uh, courageous. Didn't know I was hunting ghosts at the time. What what, (laughs) what did you find? I actually thought I was being chased by a ghost. So, uh, (laughs) Oh, they were hunting you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And now the tables have turned, haven't they? Um, But no, I actually was uh, in a small town in Mississippi, uh, my grandmother lived close to a graveyard and with the local kids we used to dare each other at night to run through this graveyard that was suspected to be haunted um i took that dare and yes there's that courageous nature right there and i started running through the graveyard and i felt this presence behind me it was just like an energy that was i felt like something was following me and i turned around and immediately thought it was the kids but no i was still by myself and uh as i'm running you soon realize that I don't think you can outrun a ghost. I don't I don't think it's possible. So <laughs> So you guys have been turning the tables and running back at them. Now I've been chasing these ghosts. Well, Marcus, how about you? Were you the last to join the group? What you got you started with this paranormal pack? Uh, well, actually, um, Dalen was one of my clients. Um, I used to cut hair um, in the AUC um, where Dalen and Juwan went to school at uh, Clark Atlanta. And I was actually uh, Dalen's barber. And um, every, we all know that, you know, your barber and your stylist are like the people that you share pretty much everything with every idea, every aspiration, every interest. And so, um, as a result, we were just having a conversation and he was like, Hey man, say man, why ain't nobody? That's how you say Why ain't nobody like us on, uh, on TV doing ghost hunting? And so I was like, I don't know. Why aren't anybody like you doing <laughs> ghost hunting on television? He's like, man, we should do it. I said, yeah, you should do it. Yeah, man, we should do it. They just kept saying we, and it just ended up being we in in uh, Savannah, Georgia, with me, Jawan, and one other guy, and it was all good from there. Well, Savannah is one of those places. There are so many stories of ghosts. Yeah. There, you know, on any given night, there are like ten ghost tours walking around the place. Yeah. But I am curious about that. What you said earlier, Dale, and you know, you all come from pretty religious backgrounds. So, isn't belief in or especially contacting the other side frowned upon? 
That's very, very taboo. Yeah. My mother's a pastor of a church. And I remember we were talking not too long ago, and I was, you know, we were just having a conversation. And I've never seen her look at me the way she looked at me. And she was just like, Dalen, if you truly knew what you were doing, you wouldn't be doing it. Well, it was because it's wow. malevolent? It's, yeah. it's all bad? Just opening myself up to that whole other side. She was just like, because you don't know what you're actually doing and what you could be opening up and who you could be bringing forth or conjuring up. She, she was just like, yeah, so maybe you're, you being naive is what's like a, a superpower. Oh, uh, yeah, right? Yeah. If, you do, if you're not afraid of it, yeah. then you're just going to go in. Well, let's hear a little bit from the show. The debut episode for the season is called The Bad Man. Here's a clip. You'll hear full disembodied voices you think is somebody else talking to you. Um, I was in the kitchen cooking food for us, and I hear my name. I turned around the servant's stairwell, and there was a man crouched down looking around. Okay, super creepy. And you visited this home. It's called the Wedding Cake House in Michigan. Now, from what I can see, you listen to the experience of the family there. You hear what they have to say about their encounters. You bring it all your ghost detection machines. Then what happens? Uh, Go ahead. Uh, I, well, just almost going back to what you were saying, too, um, about the spirituality yeah. as well as the equipment. Um, I think one of the things that helps us um, with what we do as far as in the paranormal, our group specifically, is that we do have that experience in the spiritual realm where we do cover ourselves a lot in prayer and uh, just really make sure that we have ourselves like really prepared spiritually so that when we go into these places, it's not just one of those things where it's like, you know, a naive, a naive situation where you just have a piece of equipment in your hand. And like, and like Dalen said, conjuring up st- stuff that you don't know you haven't, you're conjuring up. So, uh, when we do pull up and show up with our, uh, equipment, what we normally do, we just pop the trunk on them goes pretty much. <laughs> and, and that's what we do. We uh, bring our equipment out and measure up and see what happens and then try to find a way to help these families through these ordeals. So. Well, well, then what is the goal? Is it contact? Is it validation for the people who are living there? Is it coexistence or clearing out? What, what kind of solutions are you adding, Juan? So I think the goal shifts from uh, resident to resident. Um, sometimes it's confirming their paranormal claims. Sometimes it's offering a paranormal resolve. Uh, and then sometimes it's even taking it as far as like bringing in some help to see if we can offer them the tools that they need to kind of spiritually cleanse this property. Um, so like, I think our goal shifts, but at the at the core of it, it's just helping these families, right? At the core of it, it's really kind of identifying if there is this paranormal phenomenon that could be potentially hurting, harming, or even just living amongst this family right that not must be rent. yeah <laughs> right not paying rent. so Come you're on. the eviction party. Hey man, listen, oh, yeah. so, or i'm trying to figure out how they can put on some of this white bill that they cause and you know turn on the lights on and off you know you gotta put something on that all right the part of the whole thing that you do is also research the history of a place mm-hmm. so what does that add dalen i think that's your, your that's kind of yeah, your area yeah I think what that adds is just um, a level of personability. Like you kind of know what's really, really going on in your personal space. This is your house. This is where you're sleeping. This is supposed to be the safe place that you are. And you have something that you most likely can't see. You don't know what it is. You don't know where it came from. You don't know who it could possibly be. So when we get to come in, we get to dig a little bit deeper of under that surface. So we're looking at property records. We're looking at death certificates. We're looking at um, draft cards. So we're looking at anything possible 
possibly that can be linked to this property, your house, or even your family. And we're bringing up all type of information. So like I said, it just lets you know we get to put a face to who could potentially be in your house, a time frame from which they probably came from, uh, a name. So it's just, yeah, all the who, what, when, whys, and wheres are answered once you start digging that deep. And when you are answering those questions, are you trying to uncover, or do you often uncover, maybe that's the better question, a wrongful death. You know, I mean, that's one of the beliefs about spirits, that they're kicking around because their business is unfinished. Yeah, so uh, let's just say that the spirit is very, very active because of a... a rumor, I would say. I huh? would say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a rumor. All right, you got me. <laughs> yeah. We actually bought the whole town off. Of yeah, that one, we right? had to bring the whole town out to correct this rumor. Oh, yeah. Trying yeah. to clear somebody's name. Yeah. yeah. That is Dalen Spratz, Joan Mass, and Marcus Harvey, the Ghost Brothers. Their first season on the Travel Channel is now available online. Um, Marcus, I hear you consider yourself the charmer of the group. Ah, yes. Does that sense of charm work on ghosts? Um, well, I would say that I, I share that responsibility with Jawan. Uh, we have our ways of charming, uh, very similar in effect, but, uh, Dang, what different. am I? Just a doll? Aggressive. Well, you just got done getting all the, doll. all the research. Like, we don't pick up not one research <laughs> pen and you didn't not pass not book. one. You're like, yes, well, I, I researched book. everything all night. Not a book. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, yeah, I just use humor for mine. I mean, I feel like, like we said, um, with our whole group, we're very just, you know, uh, we're very a uh, tight knit group. So we kind of use our chemistry around to kind of make whatever's in the house feel a part of that type of camaraderie. So we look at it like, you know, typically when we're looking at all these spirits, it's somebody who passed. So if someone, you know, passed, you know that they typically respond better to people who are more positive than negative a, a lot of times. So we try to keep that positive um, outlook and really try to make whatever's in there like, oh, OK, yeah. He's the ghost brother. Yeah. Yeah. I'm here and here. I'm in here. Yeah. But I mean, how can it help but be scary? I mean, yeah. oh, super scary. Terrifying. I mean, and you guys go and you like pull up and you pull out your sleeping bags and you spend the night there. We hop out, we pop the trunk and then we get to it. I we see that you woke a little in. bit. I see you woke talking about pull up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> Well, do people do write and contact you from all over. So, Dalen, how do you pick the locations? And uh, Marcus, I'm by no means saying that he's the only person. See, there we go. Yeah. No, it's definitely <laughs> a group effort. Uh, we pick our locations based on the story attached to it and the family need. So some cases are, you know, the families are in dire need. Like there's one case where uh, a gentleman is actually floating the rent between two properties. Yeah. So, like. No one wants to pay two mortgages, especially for one place that you're not even living at, and especially for another one that's infested by potential entities or poltergeist activities. So if they sell this house, you think we get commission? You should. Mm. I can see see what this game is all Uh, about. uh, Are you moving into real estate? Uh, Is it Ghost Brothers (laughs) Haunted Real Estate, (laughs) Max? You know, I actually remember reading something about this, that in China, you know, they're building all these huge, huge buildings, Uh and they're trying to sell all this real estate. And one of the markers that competitors do is they sort of tag a place as being haunted because nobody will go near it if it's haunted. Mm. So they make more money on their buildings. Wow. So I'm just saying you can you can have that for free right. as part of, of your game you can use out there. <laughs> I see you out here. Radio the game is to be sold. Well, I want to do I do want to get to the gizmos because you bring out some pretty good stuff to talk to or communicate with. Let's say ghosts. Here's a clip from the upcoming episode this week where you bring out a very special gadget. I just had one quick. Why are all of our devices going bonkers right now? 
We set a rampart at the top of the stairs where Jeff has made mention to something running up and down the stairs. Look, 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 look. Oh. Every time, every time we weren't looking at it, it started going off bananas. Joan, what's going on there? Oh my God, that's that rim Remy pod. We call it the Remy pod. It's actually called the Rim pod. Uh, it's going off due to some electromagnetic energy in the area, and we can't seem to find it. It seemed like it was just kind of running from us. Well, it used to be, you know, Ouija boards and seances. Is is technology now the key to communicating with the other realms? I think so. I think so. I think the other realm utilizes technology to to, to communicate with us. Uh-huh. Um, I think it 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 pulls from these energy sources. So uh, technology is definitely allowing the spirits the, uh, their their voice, if you will. The spirits have Wi-Fi. They do. <laughs> spirits have Wi-Fi, too. And they don't pay for that either. And they I'm don't pay for nothing. They're so tech savvy. What is the craziest thing you've ever seen? Hmm. I think... Uh, Go ahead. Um, OCD Jail. You can tell them about that. OCD Jail. Uh, that was a... That would be a full, bo- full body, like shadow figure. We were uh, investigating in Charleston, South Carolina, and we was in this place called Old City Jail. And Marcus and Jawan were upstairs, and I was looking on the monitors downstairs, watching them. And as I'm watching them upstairs, I literally see on one of the monitors this shadow figure. It was a full person, arms, lead, head, neck, feet, walk past the camera. And it wasn't them. They were walking towards the camera and this they would have essentially bumped right into this shadow figure. And it was just super cool because the cameras were recording and we caught it on camera. And you can review the footage and we all were able to see this full shadow walking past this like it was just weird. Like it wasn't like it was projecting on a wall or anything. Like it was a full walking (laughs) shadow shadow (laughs) that got caught on film. So that's probably the craziest thing. I've ever seen. It was just super cool that everybody else was able to validate it as well. Wow. So what what do you tell people who say like, oh, this is just, you know, you can fake that kind of stuff on camera. You can you can put anything on your electromagnetic. There's heat on everything. I mean, what do you say to the skeptics watching you go through these houses? I think um, one of the best lines I even heard Dalen say was ghosts are like roaches. Everybody acts like they don't have them, but they do. (laughs) So uh, I feel like that's the key thing because typically every time you know we tell tell people what we do they always you know give us the first initial uh reaction is like oh man i don't believe in ghosts is it real is it real and then as soon as we walk away hey hey, real quick real quick before you leave uh in my basement i always smell old black and miles and i think that's my granddaddy because he used to smell he used to always smoke black and miles you know i just think that might be him and that's how it always comes off so it's like no matter who what when, where, everybody's had some type of experience or had some type of curiosity to something that they could not explain. And when they find guys like ourselves, they really just like are opened up to that curiosity. Like, oh, I know somebody's an expert finally, you know, and it just so happens to be somebody who looks like them a lot of times with us. All right, Dylan, I'm going to ask you because you mentioned your mom, a pastor. Does mm-hmm. she watch the show? She does, and only because she loves her son. Man, this mom be having a watch party. Don't she let her does, right? Right. Right. That's my baby. Cindy, now you know my baby owns so what we talking. <laughs> he ain't worshiping the devil, though, I promise. I promise. He was man of God. Come on.
That's Dalen Spratt, Jawan Mass, and Marcus Harvey, the Ghost Brothers. The first season of their show on the Travel Channel is now available online. And we will leave you today with Ghost by Michael Jackson. We will be back again tomorrow with even more haunting tales from around the state. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Jessica Lowell and Alexis Thomason. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kylie is senior producer. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. Virginia Prescott, if you'd like to pass around the show or if you missed any of today's show and want to listen on your own time, hit the Programs tab for On Second Thought at gpbnews.org. That's where you can find links to segments that we air today or you can subscribe to the OST podcast so you will never miss a trick or a treat. The ghost of